you have your Bibles, John chapter 12. If you did not bring a Bible or you don't have a Bible app of some sort, then the guys in the back have Bibles that they would love to put into your hands. Uh, John chapter 12 is where we'll be. If you need a Bible, hands up nice and high. People next to you or around you will help you find John 12 if you need help. Fourth Gospel of the New Testament. And I hope you're, you wore your steel toe shoes today because it's going to get ugly. You ready? Hear what God has to say to you? No, it's good. It's good. It's always good. God's word is all, it's like a two-edged sword, right? In some ways it cuts us so deeply, but in other ways it heals. Awesome. Let's pray. Father, we, we embrace, we, we're here, Lord, because, I pray, because we long to hear from you. We know that this world has just left us empty. Matter of fact, it's just squeezed us and ground us, Lord into powder in so many ways. The world system is just grinding us down, Lord. Challenging any moment of time we might try to spend with you. Keeping us busy. Keeping us on the treadmill. And Lord, we've we've determined to be here as your sheep flocking together to hear your voice, to listen, to know what you might say to us today words of comfort, words of encouragement, words of challenge today, Lord. So I pray that your spirit would bring your word to life. That these are not words of a a pastor just speaking from himself. But that these would be seen as they are in truth, the very word of God. And I pray that they would be received that way, Lord. Accepted or rejected by those that are here. And I pray accepted. Father, uh, just pray your spirit would begin to um, soften hard hearts this morning. That your spirit would begin to uh, challenge preconceived thinking. That any pride that's in the room this morning would just begin to fade away in the face of humility before you. We confess our pride, Lord. We humble ourselves and we ask, Lord, to teach us in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. We are in John chapter 12, the last message for, for this chapter. We've spent a number of, of weeks in the 12th chapter. It's the last week of, of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. Uh, last week we saw, and it's been a focus of John's gospel, the fact that The cross, uh, the gospel, is not just for Jewish people, not just for American people, but for all people. And the question that had come uh, was from a few Greek people, non-Jews, that said they wanted to see Jesus. And these guys weren't sure what to do with that. Should we bring them? Should we not bring them? What, what, you know, Jesus is Jewish, he's in the temple. How does this work with non-Jewish people? And uh, so the, he, after teaching them about his own death, uh, uh, using the, the grain of wheat as an example, unless the grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. We talked about that last week. And then eventually he gets to the answer to the question, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself, all kinds of people. Not every individual person, but all types of people, young and old, black and white, you know, Mexican and American, and you, you name, whatever it is. Rich and poor. God says, if, 
Jesus confesses to them, when I am crucified, that will be a, a calling to all pe- of all people to myself. There's no one that is outside the reach of the cross. And you have to know this. So he answers the question, and he talks to them about light, another huge theme in, in John's gospel, light and darkness. Chapter 1 speaks about light came in the wor- into the world and darkness did not comprehend it, didn't receive it. And John chapter 3, we, we have similar discussions. And on through the gospel, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. A lot of discussions about light and darkness in John's gospel. And, and Jesus tells them, look, while you have the light, walk in the light. And that's where we left off last week. I will pick up in verse 37 of the 12th chapter of John. And, uh, but before we do so, I want you to know that this is the last, that what we're going to read here up to chapter 13 is the last sort of public teaching that Jesus does before he goes to the cross. After this, and we've got a number of chapters left in the Gospel of John and some extremely rich, rich teaching. You know, chapters 14, 15, and 16, all about the Holy Spirit. So I'm really excited to go through that with everybody. Very, very important, important stuff. But Jesus was teaching that at the time to his close group of disciples. That's not a public address right here these are, he's still in the temple he's still teaching publicly before his crucifixion he's going to retire with his disciples to a private place and uh, and teach them further things but this is where we we pick up and and the question i have as we pick up is this have you ever noticed that people tend to believe what they want to believe and people tend to see what they want to see I was looking at a picture this morning. Helga had printed out the pictures for the table in the back of the building project. And I was looking at one of the pictures. And I, and I said, oh, that's a great picture of these people. I said, but it's blurry. And she said, it's blurry. What are you talking about? It's blurry. And I was looking. I said, look, it's so blurry. The picture's blurry. And she said, no, it's not blurry. I said, yes, it is. She said, take off your glasses. I took off my glasses. The picture was perfectly clear. The problem wasn't with the picture. The problem is I was viewing the picture through blurry lenses. So I had to go and clean my glasses. Oh, it's a beautiful picture. After all, shame on me. And the first thing, why do I say that? I say that because look at what verse 37 says. The question is, if all this is true about Jesus, if the gospel is so good, and if God is so good, and if Jesus has done all, you know, demonstrated uh, all of these things to people. And he's talked about being the, the good shepherd. And he's talked about being the light. And, and I am the bread of life. And all these things. The question is, why doesn't everybody believe? Why doesn't everybody just buy into it? Why doesn't everybody yield to it? And that's the question John is answering now. Verse 37 says, but although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. And this is a quote from Isaiah 53. Lord, who has believed our report? And who, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord meaning the strength of the power, uh, the goodness of God. So John, in his commentary on all of this, as he thinks this through, he says, you know, what's happening is just like Isaiah had said. In, in Isaiah's day, it was the same thing. There's nothing new under the sun. Uh, people are the same all, all throughout history. And here's the question that, that Isaiah was asking as he was talking about the suffering servant, the one who would 
who would bear the stripes for our healing in, in chapter 53 of Isaiah. Phenomenal chapter. The question is, why aren't people, who's, who's, why aren't people believing it? That's what Isaiah asked. Who's believed our before? Has anyone believed what we've said? Isaiah was given this ministry of, you know, God says, who, who's, who am I going to send? Isaiah says, here, here I am, send me. I'll go and I'll preach and I'll, I'll do what's necessary. And, but here's the difficulty with preaching. Isaiah's finding tremendous failure from a human standpoint. I'm preaching, God, just as you told me to, but nobody's believing. And it's interesting that he that John says, although it's like John can't even believe it, although he'd done so many signs, seven miracles that John lists, he doesn't even list them all. Turning water into wine, feeding the multitudes, and so on and so forth. The, the, the healing of the man born blind and all these miracles that John reports, and yet people still don't believe. And it's interesting, although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. And some people say, well, if I would only see a sign, then I would believe. No, you wouldn't. And here's the reason, because signs and evidence all has to be interpreted. Everybody has, people that believe in evolution have the same evidence that people that believe in creation do. But yet that evidence can be interpreted differently. You can have one event and two people. Look, I do a lot of marriage counseling. They're living in the same home, but I got two different events going on. I mean, people have what's called a confirmation bias. Have you ever heard of that before? That means people will see what they want to see. So the interpret so the problem is the blurry glasses that I interpret what I see through all what I believe. So belief comes first and belief will drive interpretation. How you see something depends on what you want to believe about it. Now, maybe you've known a, a young person or a young couple, and they are just convinced that they are destined to be married. Even though everybody in the world around them says, this is a terrible thing. You should not get married. You know, but no matter what you tell them, they will find things to prove and confirm their belief that they are destined, that it's love, and they're meant to be together. Why? Because we both like the color blue. It's amazing, isn't it? We have so much in common. And five years later, they're in my office going, we can't stand each other. We have nothing in common. What happened? Confirmation bias. People see what they want to see. And that's what happens. That's why signs don't lead to faith. Interesting, I I downloaded this article and we'll talk a little bit about this as we go through uh, more. Uh, how many of you guys are sports, guys or ladies, are, are sports enthusiasts, like to watch sports? Uh, maybe some of you are, afraid to raise your hand in here. Uh, basketball, any basketball fans? Okay, yeah, a lot of basketball fans. So you ever heard of the, the idea that, that a basketball player can get, he's got hot hands or he's on a streak or things like that? It just seems to be he can't miss a shot. And maybe you believe that that's true. Well, Two people did a study on that in the 80s. Uh, Tversky and Gilovich began sifting through years of statistics from the Philadelphia 76ers. That's my hometown. The psychologist looked at every single shot taken by every single player and recorded whether or not that shot had been preceded by a string of hits or misses. All told, they analyzed thousands upon thousands upon thousands of attempts of shots. Why'd they do this? Because they were interested in testing the hot hands phenomenon. 
which occurs when NBA players are convinced that they're hot on a roll in the zone or whatever you want to call it. While players, coaches, and spectators were convinced that hot hand was real, the psychologists knew that humans are notoriously bad at detecting streaks. After all, we're the same species that gets convinced we're playing a hot slot machine. After analyzing all the shots of the 76ers, the psychologists discovered that there was absolutely no evidence of the hot hand. A player's chance of making a shot was not affected by whether or not the previous shots had gone in. Each field goal was independent in itself. The short runs experienced by the 76ers were no different than short runs that naturally emerge from any random process. Taking a jumper was like flipping a coin. The streaks were a figment of our imagination. Now, the article goes on to talk about some other ways that they confirmed this. But then here's the question. Why then do we believe in the hot hand? Confirmation bias is to blame. Our faulty reasoning mechanisms kick in as we start ignoring the misses and focusing on the mistakes. In other words, we seek out evidence that confirms our own suspicions. The end result is that a mental fiction dominates our perception of the game. Here's what things get, get even bigger. Even though I know all about this research, the author says, and fully believe the data, I still perceive that it's true. I can't help but watch the NBA playoffs and marvel at the streakiness of shooters from Kobe to Rose. Red Auerbach, the legendary coach of the Celtics, reportedly responded to this study by saying, that, uh, saying, so he makes a study. I could care less. Hugo Mercer and Dan Sperber argue that human reason has nothing to do with finding the truth or locating the best alternative. Instead, it's all about being able to argue with others. Much evidence, however, shows that reasoning often leads to epistemic distortions and poor decisions. Hang with me just one more minute here. Psychologists have shown that people have a very, very strong, robust confirmation bias. What this means is that when they have an idea, they start to reason about that idea, they're going to mostly find arguments for their own idea. They're going to come up with reasons why they're right. They're going to uh, come up to, uh, with justifications for their decisions. They're not going to challenge themselves. And the problem with confirmation bias is that it leads people to make very bad decisions and to arise at crazy beliefs. Now, Jeremiah tells us that the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? So signs, even though we'd done all these signs, they didn't lead to belief. Let's read a little bit farther. We, we saw what Isaiah said about uh, who's, who's listening. Who's, why aren't people believing? Why aren't people listening? Verse 39 takes it even farther, and we'll talk more about this. Because this is fast. This to me, we're fascinating creatures, aren't we? Human beings are fascinating creatures. Uh, therefore, verse 39 says, they could not believe. Because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. So when you're, this is what Isaiah said, Isaiah chapter 6. This is the ministry God gave Isaiah. He had a ministry that involved uh, hardening people's hearts, so to speak. Desensitizing them. And we'll talk about how he did that. Because you read this and it makes it seem like God is making it impossible for certain people to believe that God has determined that some people are going to be hardened and other people's are not because this is what he says therefore they could not believe and we assume that it's God's fault 
But the fault doesn't lie with God. The fault lies with us. Again, because the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful. So what happens? Because people have what we call a confirmation bias. That, that's just, that's just a, a, a name for this thing about human nature, this thing that we, we tend to fall into. Unless you challenge your beliefs, unless you're willing to challenge your beliefs, you will be defending them, even if they're wrong. You see, I, I grew up as a biology major. I was a biology major in, uh, in college. And I grew up learning all the same evolutionary stuff that, that everybody else learned, that many of you learned and your kids are learning in school. I just accepted it. Uh, then I read the Bible, and I began to think about, and for me, the big catch, and I'm not going to get into a whole evolutionary discussion this morning, but for me, the big catch was the origins of life. I'd been told that in the beginning, there was this goo, and, and somehow lightning struck, and, and, it, and, it brought, and it brought life, that somehow the spark of life came. But then I, I realized, and you guys, I'm not telling you anything new, that I, I've never seen a situation where life comes from non-life. Matter of fact, that's against scientific theory. So I began to ask questions that no one could answer. But then I read the Bible and I see where there's Adam in the garden. God forms him out of the dust of the earth, which is consistent with our makeup. We're, our, what we're made of is consistent with what the earth is made of. And that God, the giver of life, the origin of life, gave life to Adam, breathed it into his nostrils. I said, that makes sense. So I had to challenge what I believed. And, but see, this is the problem. Very few people are willing to challenge what they believe. Our tendency is to defend what we believe rather than to be open to challenging what we believe. And I tell, you know, my son and, and many other young folks around here, I tell them, challenge what you believe. Because the Bible, the Word of God, has stood up to thousands of years of scrutiny. It is a, as they say, it's an anvil that's worn out many hammers. So I have no problem letting my faith in Christ be challenged. Because every time, it, it just, yeah. it's right there. It's right there. And what I see, what the Bible says about me is so right on, right? I mean, I don't read the Bible. The Bible reads me. But here's the challenge is, is maybe you've got someone in your life that you say, you know, oh, if they would only see this, they would believe. If they would only see that, they would believe. Not necessarily. Because that same message, how, how does Isaiah harden people's hearts again? Look at what the, the verse says. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. So that or lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. The same message that causes one to believe causes another to defend and their unbelief position and become harder and harder and harder. So really, the way God hardens hearts, the way God saves people, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, right? But how does God harden a heart? Same way. Same way. One message, one person hears it and says, I believe. The other person hears it and says, I don't believe. And the more they reject it, the harder they get until it becomes impossible for them to believe. The, listen, it, and this is a very, very important warning to some of you here this morning. The more you reject, the more you, you uh, confirm yourself in your unbelief, the more that you hear it. Now, this is wives. Listen, you preach to your husbands and you wonder why the more you preach to them, the madder they get, right? Or vice versa, or your kids. Because the more you preach to them, and the more they defend their unbelief or de- reject it, the harder they're going to get. And that's what Isaiah's ministry was. Thanks a lot, God. What a great ministry I've got to harden people's hearts by preaching the gospel. 
by preaching good news. I had, uh, so that's one way. So, so in some ways, it's because this confirmation bias. It's because we come thinking that I can't believe that. I can't, you, you come believing that I can only believe in something I can touch and measure. That's a very common, current way of thinking. But who says that that's true? Who says that everything, who says that everything that's real is observable and measurable? There's, the Bible says that God created things seen and unseen. So I believe that there's things that exist that we can't see. I believe my dog can see more than I can see. True, isn't it? My dog has sensory ability with his eyes because of the way they're, they're built by God to pick up on light that I can't pick up on. They can hear things I can't hear, right? Just because I can't hear it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Do you see how pride so prevails in our lives? We believe that just because I can't measure it, just because I don't understand it, it must not exist. All that junk genetics, that we're supposedly junk genetics in our, in our genetic system, that the scientists, they didn't know what it did, so it must be junk. Well, now they find it's crucial to turning genes on and off, and, and it's, uh, but pride. So sometimes people don't believe because of pre-existing beliefs that they will hold on to. Matter of fact, one man said that whenever your opinions or beliefs are so intertwined with your self-image, you couldn't pull them away without damaging your core concepts of self, you avoid situations which may cause harm to those beliefs. So the real challenge is not necessarily just from pride or these pre-existing ideas of what's right and what's wrong, but sometimes the real challenge is self-identity. Is it change, you know, if you've grown up in a cult, if you've grown up with a system of beliefs and you begin to challenge those and you begin to change, because at some point you have these, these new beliefs will cause you to change. If you believe them, and you embrace them, it'll lead to change. And, and that can be difficult. You know, when I became, when I, when, when I was making that transition from being Horseshoe or Steve, which was cool, you know, Horseshoe or Steve, like, uh, my, my wife grew up in New York, uh, out on Long Island, and, and some of the people that, that she grew up with, uh, one guy I met at a, we, we'd go up there for the 4th of July, big parade, and all the kids that she grew up with would be there. And I, I tell you this story, because it was a defining moment in my life. And I think it may do somebody here a little bit of good as well. But we'd go up there, and, and I would talk to the, you know, we're newly married, right? Uh, fairly newly married at the time. Uh, and so, you know, I want I wanted people to know my wife married good. You know, she married a guy who means something. So, you know, this guy, well, he's a Navy SEAL. As if that's not bad enough, he's then gone on to become a neurosurgeon. Like, you overachiever, you. And then this guy, he's, he, he's in, he sails with the America's Cup boat. I'm like, man, how am I supposed to compete with this? Navy SEAL neurosurgeon, America's Cup. But see, blacksmith, that's kind of like rugged. That's kind of cool. You know, you, I work with fire and steel. It's manly. But then I became a pastor. So I'd be standing there at the, at the party. So... You know, and of course, guys, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a Navy SEAL neurosurgeon, you know. <laughs> and then, of course, the question is, what do you do? <laughs> I'm a pastor. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're sitting there drinking Budweiser, you know. It's, and the minute they find I'm a pastor, I'm a pastor... It's over. You know, the, the conversation is over. I'm a lunatic who's wasted my life on a myth and all these things. And, yeah, nice talking to you. I'm going to go back and sin over here where I don't feel guilty anymore. Uh, 
But what I realized, and the Lord really dealt with me in that. The Lord really dealt with me. And, and before I, I give you the rest of this story, I want to read down a little bit farther, and then we'll come back to this story. So hang with me. These things Isaiah said, so quoting these things about people's hardness and, and, and those things, he said, when he saw his glory and spoke of him, this is when he was seeing the glory of God, when he's seeing um, the Lord high and lifted up, his, the train of his robe filled the temple. Again, you can read it, Isaiah chapter 6. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. You see, that was my issue. I had an issue of identity. It really mattered to me what people thought of me. It affected where I found my significance. It affected where I found my image. My image was wrapped up in the work I did. And when God changed that, he had to deal with me. He said, Steve, is it okay to find your identity in me? And I said, I don't know, God. I'll get back to you on that one. I'm working on it. But it's, it's, it's been a growing thing. I had to give up. I had to give up my identity in some of the things I found in the world. And maybe for you, it's that party lifestyle. Maybe for you, it's those friends that you party with. Maybe for you, it's, it's, a, it's a sexual uh, intention. It's a sexual uh, identity that you have. And it's a willingness to give up what I find my identity in and find it only in Christ. Nothing else. And see, there were, so yeah, there's a lot of people who, the more the preaching comes out, the more rejection that there is, the more hardening of hearts there is. But yet there, there's this other group that does believe, yet you don't know it because they never tell you because they're afraid to because it costs them something. And because the people that they rub elbows with are so influential and so powerful, they're going to keep it a secret and not let it come out. Now, two that we know of in the Bible, Joseph of Arimathea, and Nicodemus. They were probably two of, of among many who John is referring to. These guys were part of the ruling body. They had power. They had friendships. They had, all their relationships were built around their religious system. But then they got saved. And now what? You see, if they said outwardly that they believed in Jesus, they would be excommunicated. And some of you have had to go, with, go through that. We heard Kareem and his wife's testimony about what it cost them to say that they were Christians and what it cost them in their families and what it cost them at their workplace and what it cost them maybe in in the previous religious system that you were part of. Maybe you grew up uh, in Hinduism. Maybe you grew up in Islam. Maybe you grew up in Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormonism or any of these things. And then you confess a belief in the Jesus of the Bible. And now your family says, we don't have room for that around here. Jesus said, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. He did come to bring peace, but he also came to bring a sword. And, it set, and, and the gospel sets sometimes parents against children and children against parents. Mothers against fathers, father, or fathers against uh, sons and sons against fathers and so on. Because these things, belief can be divisive when you t- finally take a stand for something in your life. It can cause that. Anybody been through that? I met a guy when I was in uh, Nepal. His village kicked him out because he became a believer. So you know what he did? He went back and he began to pray for his village. Guess what? Today all his village is believers. 
But for a time, he was working for uh, Gospel for Asia when I met him, but for a time, his village kicked him out. Imagine that. And maybe some of you have had to go through that. And then this is the problem that John is recognizing. So there's some that whose hearts are hard, they don't believe, they won't believe. And, and now they've so ingrained in, in, in being against it, they're so persistent in their atheism that it's near impossible for them to accept it because they won't. Not because they can't, because they won't. And then you have men like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea who are dealing with the consequences, the very real consequences. Now, John is not easy on them, is he? He calls it like it is. He says, here's the issue. They love the praise of men more than the praise of God. And that's something we have to sort out for ourselves. The question is, why? Why does it matter so much to us what the people around us think about us? I mean, yeah, sure, we, we, you know, that's why, this is why church, when we come together, like nobody else wants us. Nobody else understands us. Like, if you become a Christian, like, let's say the young folks at school, you guys, you're at Piedmont, you're at the high school here, you're at the middle school, and you say you're a Christian, and your friends laugh at you. And, and they make fun of you, or they don't want to hang out with you because you're a Christian, you believe that stuff. It can get lonely. But God has put us in a flock together. It's important for this fellowship. Why? Because here it's safe. Here we, 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 we believe the same thing. And if church is a place where there's no acceptance and where people get ostracized or people get teased or whatever, for whatever reason, you know, where, where can I go if I can't come to church and be accepted here? So there can be a cost. And, and, and I don't, it's a good question. Do you love the praise of God or do you love the praise of men? And especially tough for teenagers, man. So those teenagers, very, very difficult to not go with the flow and to be part of the crowd, but to be willing to be different and the social cost of those things. Verse 44, Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. So now he's, he's, he's teaching these things uh, out loud publicly. He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. If you've seen me, you see God. There's a lot of people who say, I believe in God. And when they say that, they don't mean the same thing you do. Because God is sort of this nebulous term that can mean almost anything to anybody. Right? So you say, well, do you believe in God? Yeah, I believe in God. But you've got to go past that. You've got to get behind that and see what that God is like. A lot of people believe in gods of their own making. When Jesus came, and the, and the writer of Hebrews tells us he is the exact nature and impression of God. He is God in the flesh. Jesus made God unmistakable. And that's why he's so con- contentious. That's why there's so much contention around him. Because we can't, he has made God specific and real to us. And there's no question, there's no doubt, Jesus is, we can see him, we can touch him, we, we know what he's like, we see how he deals with people, we hear his words, we know what he says. You can't kind of make up any God you want. Jesus says, you've seen me, you've seen God. You either reject me or you accept me. And in rejecting or accepting me, you reject or accept God himself. Because I am him in the flesh. 
Does that make sense? Are we together on that? It's a wonderful thing. Because to me, that makes things simple. I'm not a, I'm not a guy that does great with like hypothetical situations and, and gray issues, gray areas. I like concrete stuff. Do you like concrete stuff? I mean, I like things to be clear. When Jesus came, he made God clear. Right? I don't have to question anymore. I don't have to go, well, he's so, he's just kind of out there and he, I don't really understand him. I can't really get a handle on him. That's why Jesus came. So you could get a handle on God. Because there's a lot of misconceptions and misunderstandings about, about God, who he is, what he's like, and all that. Jesus clears all of that up. And, and much to the chagrin of a lot of people at the time. Because they didn't like what he did. Because he didn't fall into their system. He didn't play their game. He touched people with leprosy. He was kind and welcoming to women, which in that culture wouldn't have been the way it would have been. He didn't fall into their set of rules, religiously speaking. He took religion from from the external. He made it internal, personal, a relationship. That's what God is interested in. Relationship. He's not interested in your religion. He's not interested in your rituals. He's interested in your heart. Verse 46. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide or remain in darkness. This is why he came. I came to shed light on God. To shed light on truth. There's a whole world that's in darkness. And sitting there, walking around, trying to function in darkness. You ever, I mean, a couple years ago, wintertime storm, lights go out. We were out for seven days, no power. Man, I would have given you $1,000 for a flashlight. You know, walking around, stumbling around in the dark, trying to figure out what's what. It's terrible to live in the dark. And Jesus came and said, the heart of God that says, my people, they're in darkness. I've got to show them. And so he sends light into the world. That whoever believes in me, so you believe, that comes first, and then you won't walk in that darkness. The darkness of confirmation bias, the darkness of old beliefs, the the darkness of lies, and the world's agenda, and all those things. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. For those that think God is so judgmental, That God is just ready to drop the hammer. Jesus says again. He said this in John 3 as well. He didn't come. The world is already condemned. We are condemned in our sin. We've broken the law. We've we've been immoral. We're already condemned. But because God is so merciful. And so full of love. That's what John 3.16 says. God so loved the world. John is all about the love of God. And, and we, the church, sometimes gives the impression that, that God wants to judge people. God wants to save people. He wants to rescue from the, them from their darkness. He wants to rescue them from their faulty beliefs. He wants to rescue them from the lies of Satan. And so he sends the light, not to judge, but to save. Now, I didn't come into the, to the world to judge the world, but to save the world. Listen now, this is what's important. Because this is going to radically change some of your understanding. He who rejects me and does not receive my words 
has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. What you do with Jesus, what you do with what he says, is what judges you. Not See, God's come to save you. If you reject him, that's what gets you judged. That's what causes you to, re- if you don't want to spend eternity, if you don't want to spend now with God, why would you want to spend eternity with him? If you have a disease and you reject the cure and you die, is that the doctor's fault? He's begging you, take the pill. Eat it, you know, swallow it. I'll put it in your mouth and I'll close your mouth on it, but I can't make you swallow it. And if you choose to hold that pill in your mouth and never swallow, because some of you here, I know in a room this size with all of you folks here, I know there are some that fall into this category. You've been hardening your heart for years. And you're hearing, you're hearing, you're hearing. I mean, the Gospel of John is all about the basic core. How many of you have heard, if you're going to start reading in the Bible, start with the Gospel of John? Because it's all about believing. You can't pass go. You can't collect $200 until you decide if you believe or not. So John, it's all about you believing and you've been sitting here for weeks and weeks and months and months. And for some of you, maybe years and years, hearing God's word and yet rejecting it. Now in that last, you know, and no one knows, it says, the word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. You don't know when your last day is going to be. The Bible says it's given unto man once to die and then the judgment. Then the question isn't, were you a good person or a bad person? or We're all bad people. Look, if we had to live with you, if I could put cameras in your house, oh, I, tell me, as a, as a, when I do counseling, I just, like, I, I just want to put cameras in your house and watch. You know, I've got to see this unfold and see what's really true and really real. Uh, if we put cameras in your house, I mean, we know, we inherently know, yeah, we do some good things, but we also do a lot of bad things. We say some nice things, but we also say a lot of mean things. We think a lot of good things, but we also think a lot of nasty things. Things we're embarrassed that we think. We're all the same. Look, there's nothing that you do that I don't do too. We, we all fall into the same category. So the question is, on that day, what did you do with my son? What did you do with the cure? What did you do with the salvation that I sent you? Did you accept it or reject it? And if you say, well, I rejected it. You see, there's two very important groups of people that are going to be there on Judgment Day. And they're going to be sitting in the witness stand for every excuse you have. The people that said, well, I just couldn't believe all the people from Nineveh will be there saying, we believed. We were wicked Assyrians who made our lives, we were experts in war and killing people. And yet when Jonah came to us and he preached that judgment was coming, we believed and we repented. So what's your excuse? And you say, oh, I guess, I guess people can believe. I guess people can change. And, and Jesus is greater than Jonah. And then guess who else is going to be there? The queen of Sheba. Sheba and Dedan are two biblical cities that are in Saudi Arabia. And for those, for those that say, well, you know, I just didn't have time. It was just, you know, church. I, Sunday's my only day to sleep in. And all, you know, I just really don't have time. Right? Someday down the road, I, my schedule's busy. I'll get to it. The Queen of Sheba traveled 1,400 miles to hear Solomon's wisdom. And we go, Sunday's my only And she's going to be there on the judgment day. 
And she's going to say, it was too hard to go to church. Are you kidding me? I traveled 1,400 miles. It was so important for me to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And you've got Jesus and the word of God, which is much better than that. And you can't get out of bed. And all of our excuses are going to go away. And the question will be, what did you do with Jesus? What did you do with the light? Did you run from it because you love your wicked deeds? That's another reason why people reject and harden. Why? Because they're living in sin and they love their sin. And so they reject the gospel. That, so don't buy this thing that God sends people to hell. God wants, he doesn't desire that any should perish. But when people reject him, that is the natural consequence. Just like rejecting the treatment for a disease. The ultimate goal, or the ultimate result, excuse me, is death. So let's finish this up. Verse 49. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command or a charge. He gave me a task to do. What I should say and what I should speak. God said, Jesus, here's what I want you to say. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to represent me there. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. He's not speaking on his own. Jesus isn't about himself. He's not about his own uh, thing. He's not about building his own, you know, worldly kind of system. He's about pointing people to God. Only showing them what God is like. And that's what we're about. That's what we want. We're not trying to point you to Calvary Chapel. We're not trying to point you to church. Although church is part of it. But it's not all of it. Step one. Step one. What do you believe? So I'm going to invite uh, Phil and the praise team to come back up. Challenging today, huh? I love it. I love it. I think it's good, you know, good preaching is supposed to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Have you heard that before? Good preaching is supposed to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And, And God is so good, and I hope you get that. He does not want to see you condemned. He does not want to see you ignore. He does not want. So as we close with a song, we're gonna, let's all stand if we could. And here's one thing that I know for sure. I know that week after week, after month after month, after year after year, I offer an opportunity to come down here and pray. And I know that many of you in here, Your heart begins to beat out of your chest and you know that invitation is for me. But you don't take it. Why? Because you're embarrassed. Because you're afraid what people are going to say or what people are going to think. If you get, actually get up and come down here and, and, and publicly come into the light out of darkness. And that's exactly what John is talking about. Because you love the praise of people more than the praise of God. Who cares what we think? We're all good. We're all in favor of it. We all did the same thing someday. And it's just Satan that doesn't want you to, to, to do that. Wants you to worry and fear and all those things. So I'm going to offer it one more time. This is crucial stuff because you don't know when your last day is going to be. So I'm going to invite you to come down here to, to forget what people think, to forget what your husband or your wife is going to think, to just come on down, parents, children, whatever, friends, and we'll stand by you because you're making a good choice. The choice, the command of God through Jesus Christ, is that you can have everlasting life. That sounds like a good thing to me. Amen? Are you awake out there? All right. So if this is you, your heart is beating out of your chest. I know the feeling. I've been there myself. That's 
Spirit of God working in your life, you know that you know that you know that what I've been saying today is not from me, but from the mouth of God. And it's for you, specifically. And I'm going to invite you to come up here and stand uh, in the light.